for example, one of the things we often do is track an assembly line, an automotive assembly line. And by attaching our trackers to the, the workers in that line, we're able to digitize very specifically what they're doing in their given workflow. So maybe they're attaching a water pump to an engine, uh, for example. You know, we can actually digitize if they've put it on correctly, if they've torqued the bolts in the correct order, all of these types of quality things that you couldn't really discern if you were using a less accurate system. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel, and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. My guest on the show today is Matthew Lowe, and he is the CEO and co-founder of a company called ZeroKey. And ZeroKey does indoor positioning, but they're doing it in a slightly different way than what we've talked about before in the podcast. So we've done episodes where we've looked into positioning as a service. We've I've talked to other companies and players in the space that are doing indoor positioning using beacons. We've had people talking about how cell phones and smartphones are the future of, of indoor positioning and how they're going to be used as a platform by fusing different data sources. We've even had people talking about using the, the geometric field of buildings to help navigate and locate position objects inside. But Matthew's approaching this from a slightly different aspect and I'm really excited to to dive into the conversation. This podcast is all about connecting people and ideas and businesses within the geospatial community and over the next few podcast episodes I'm going to be running a few experiments and this experiment is going to be about how can I facilitate that connection what what can I do to help better connect you with some of the guests that we that we feature on the show. So the idea that I have is to allow you to book a one-on-one call with, with the guests that we feature on the show. So this will only be available to the people that are on our email list. So if you go to mapscaping.com podcast, you can sign up there for our email list. And after this show, three to four days after this show is published, after this episode is published, you will have the opportunity to book a one-on-one call with, with the guest that you're about to meet with, Matt Lowe. So this is a huge opportunity. And I really hope that you take advantage of it. So I will be providing more details at the end of this podcast episode and obviously in the email that I send out three to four days after this episode is published. But yeah, so if this is something you would like to be a part of, if you'd like the opportunity to book a one-on-one call with, with the guests that you're about to meet, please go to mapscaping.com podcast, sign up there, and perhaps you'll, you'll have the opportunity to have a one-on-one call with, with Matt. Okay, let's get into the interview. Hey Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for taking the time to doing this. Uh, today we're going to be talking about something that's very near and dear to my heart and that's indoor positioning. I think it's an incredibly interesting field at the moment. There's lots of different players out there, lots of different things happening. Um, so you are the CEO and the co-founder of Zero Key, and you are working in the space of indoor positioning. Um, so, so let's just dive right in. How is What are you doing with indoor positioning? How is your solution different from some of these other ones we've talked about on the podcast, for example? Thanks for having me on the, the podcast, Dan. In Zero Key, yeah, is definitely doing something very interesting. Uh, we, we built this technology that really kind of advanced what's even possible in the indoor positioning world. And, and in a nutshell, it's really as simple as, you know, saying hyper accurate indoor location. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, what we really did was build a technology that is millimeter 
accurate in three dimensions in terms of localizing objects, um, which is pretty critical uh, in a lot of different scenarios, specifically in industrial type scenarios and in retail and logistics and supply chain, that sort of thing. So millimeter accuracy is pretty impressive. How are you doing that? Well, it relies on some proprietary IP that we built uh, going right back to the origins of the company. But really, it comes down to the fact that we rely on ultrasound or acoustics for location. And kind of the big advantage and what sets us apart from basically everyone in the indoor positioning industry, we use acoustic time of flight measurement and we, we have a whole bunch of, you know, really high level signal processing stuff that we do there, but we use ultrasound for our time of flight measurement, which is way, way, way more accurate than using radio frequency, which is what most indoor positioning technologies rely on. So time of flight, we're measuring we, from the time we send a signal to the time the signal is received. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. You got it. Okay, so normally when we do positioning, we, we think about taking measurements from, from a lot of different places and then doing what might commonly be referred to as triangulation. Is this what's happening here? Yeah, so we do basically that. We would call it uh, multilateration, but essentially it works just as you, you said. You take a whole bunch of measurements, which in our case are based on time of flight from a given point to many points. And from that time of flight, you're able to figure out how far away something is. So that gives you a range. And then you have a whole bunch of these ranges come together and using what most people would call triangulation, but kind of more accurately called multilateration, you're able to localize the precise position of something. So what kind of hardware is involved in this? So obviously we have some kind of uh, sensors and, and receivers, you know, sending out and receiving these these ultrasonic um, wavelengths. What else is involved to, to make this work? Basically the way our system is structured, you've got a whole bunch of these little tags and we've got a variety of models, um, but essentially they're as small as a coin cell battery up to larger size units for, for different use cases. So those form kind of the basis of the tracking network uh, that each one of those gets attached to whatever you want to track. And we've got some that are wristbands for putting on people on assembly lines and stuff like that. And we've got ones that are clip-on devices for access control and stuff like that. Or we even have ones that are adhesive back for tracking products or pallet, anything like that in in a supply chain. And then those communicate to what we call our anchors. And these, you can think of them a lot like GPS satellites. And so we deploy our anchors in a given environment and they form a mesh network. And that's actually what you're tracking objects relative to is those anchors. But it's kind of interesting because when you, as much as we're using acoustics and we're using ultrasound, the system itself is actually quite similar to GPS and how GPS works. Obviously, we got our own little tweaks on it, but um, the, the kind of the ultimate structure and architecture of how the positioning system works from that 
positioning aspect is, is very, very similar to what we use every day in our cars and cell phones. So you said something really interesting there. I mean, obviously you said a lot of really interesting things there, but I just want to highlight one thing, and that's um, the idea of a mesh network. W- would you mind just giving us a brief definition of what a meth- mesh network is? Yeah, so mesh networking basically was one of the enabling technologies for our solution. And what it means is you can essentially have all of these different devices spread out through the environment and you don't need a wire running to every device to be able to communicate to it. Instead, they all have radios built in and you're able to get data from one point in the network to any other point in the network using kind of all the nodes in between to relay that information. So it really does give you the ability to have a very dynamic network where objects are moving around and you know you might be in a very sprawling environment um, and you're able to scale your solution up to virtually any size of network relying on that mesh networking topology i guess what we're assuming here is that density of nodes is there's a certain amount of nodes in that so they're all within a certain distance distance of each other so they can communicate to each other is that correct yeah absolutely so our system, actually, the, the mesh networking isn't the limitation. Um, our system actually requires a fairly high density of nodes, relatively speaking, because we rely on acoustics for that time of flight ranging. So in our system, every roughly 30 to 40 meters, you would have to have another anchor node um, in the environment. Okay, so I think we have a good understanding of, of how this is sort of working now, but it'd be really interesting to hear what it looks like in practice. So I'd go, let, let's say I had a library, for example, and I chose a library because I'm, you know, there's lots of shelves, there's lots of walls, there's lots of obstructions in the way. And so the first thing I'd like to know is, does your system, do, do the wavelengths, do they propagate through those walls? That would be an interesting thing to know. And also, what would the setup in our library look like, you know, in terms of anchors and, and nodes? The frequencies we use don't propagate through walls, and that's actually a benefit. Um, and I'll get into why maybe a little bit later. But what like a library would look like is you essentially have maybe a couple dozen anchors for a section. Obviously, it depends on how big of a library you're talking about. But the acoustic waves actually do propagate around kind of smaller objects. Um, and the way I describe it, um, the, the best analogy I can think of is kind of like water flowing in a stream and you've got kind of a rock in the middle of that stream. Well, any turbulence of the water or waves in the water will propagate around the rock and continue through. Same thing with acoustic waves. But if you go up to that same stream and you build a dam, uh, obviously the water can't flow through. And so in that example, the wall is the dam versus like a shelf or something like that is uh, you know a single rock in the stream. And so for most things, as much as it will impact the accuracy a little bit, um, the acoustic waves do propagate around obstructions in the environment which is, you know, kind of a really good advantage of ours over a lot of line of sight based technologies. Okay, so again, I think you've given us a really good understanding there, which is fantastic. What I'd really like to know now, though, is how do you like how do you attach meaning to these objects? Are they just sort of objects moving around in space, or when you put them in the world, do you have to say you are attached to a, a window, for example, you are attached to a drawer? This is a wristband that a person is going to wearing is going to be wearing. Is there some kind of digitizing of objects before you sort of release them into the wild? 
to, to help sort of add a little bit more context to to the mesh network and to the the, the objects that you're tracking? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you need to know what it is you're tracking and and that gets digs a little deeper into some of the actual use cases. We deploy across a variety of industries, you know, going right from advanced manufacturing, supply chain, logistics, health and safety. Um, and each one of those use cases has a different way they kind of categorize and identify their their objects and drive some sort of meaning from the positioning data. Um, but you're absolutely right. You need to know what that device, what that tracker is assigned to or attached to uh, so that you can start to understand what it means. But you touch on a really interesting uh, thing there where, where you mentioned context. Traditionally, you're looking at things like Bluetooth, even a more modern technology called ultra wideband. And so with these technologies, you've got kind of a lower accuracy uh, positioning fix. And it really does obscure the context, especially in a lot of these high fidelity scenarios. For example, one of the things we often do is track an assembly line, an automotive assembly line. And by attaching our trackers to the, the workers in that line, we're able to digitize very specifically what they're doing in their given workflow. So maybe they're attaching a water pump to an engine, uh, for example. You know, we can actually digitize if they've put it on correctly, if they've torqued the bolts in the correct order, all of these types of quality things that you couldn't really discern if you were using a less accurate system like Bluetooth or ultra wideband. You know, the difference between torquing the bolt on the left and tor torquing the bolt on the right might be just a couple of centimeters. And traditionally, indoor positioning systems couldn't differentiate between the two because they just weren't accurate enough. So when you have this millimeter level positioning technology, now you can really start to distill that context. And so the data becomes that much more insightful and, and impactful in some sort of digital solution that you, you wrap around it. So I feel like now we need to lift it up a little bit because we're, we're talking about context and you, you gave some really good examples there of the kinds of things we, we could track and, and monitor. But but let's lift it up now and say, well, what problems can we solve with this? Because I think it's one thing to track, you know, if the if the, the, the nut has been tightened in the right way or enough. But what, what, what does that mean? How, how can we use this? How can we solve problems with this? Absolutely. So th this is where it gets really exciting because we start talking about problems that we weren't able to solve before. And that's and so just a couple of examples. We, we've got a client where they've got this really, really dangerous area of their facility. And, and essentially, they need to be able to track when people deviate as much as five centimeters from a given pathway. And if they do, then they're in you know, really big danger. And so we're able to track them precisely in that critical area, identify if they're off that, that path, and alert them through a vibration of the, the tag that they're wearing. And this is something that if you had a meter level of accuracy like you would with Bluetooth or 15 centimeters like you would with ultra wideband, you wouldn't be able to tell if they're on the, the correct path or the incorrect path. And unfortunately, in this scenario, um, they have actually a, a, a quite a few deaths every year just by workers not following the, the guidelines correctly. They get complacent over time. 
and venture into these dangerous areas where and then unfortunately you have workplace accidents. And so there's a lot of things we can do with that accuracy that no one had even thought of before because it's it just simply wasn't possible to achieve that millimeter accuracy on a large scale. But it's really tip of the iceberg. You get into some of these supply chain scenarios and it's really, really you know amazing what you can do in terms of automating and you know, attaching artificial intelligence, integrating multiple systems, when you have the ability to digitize all of these physical objects in the world that traditionally were completely invisible to the digital world. So go to a warehousing environment, for example, you would typically rely on your human operators to go around and do inventory counts and to decide for themselves the most optimal route to take in a, a warehouse to get from picking a product up on a shelf to dropping it off at a shipping and receiving location, or to even determine which of multiple SKUs that they might be picking from a shelf that they should do because they're going to be closest to. Well, now what we can do is actually use a data-driven approach to say, Tom is closest to aisle 11 and then the next order in aisle 13, right beside that, it's more efficient for him to get to it. But if you go you know, maybe one aisle over, it's actually less efficient to put that on his pick list. So you can start to make all of these, call them somewhat counterintuitive connections because we've digitized the location of people. We've digitized the entire environment. So we can really start to understand from a, a data-driven perspective what is the most optimal? What is the most efficient? Um, and then use that to drive the, the entire environment, to drive the human resources, to give them directional guidance through a heads-up display or, or to generate those pick lists uh, automatically as opposed to relying on the, the human element to infer based on, based on what they think is the most optimal. So thank you very much for those examples. Oftentimes when I hear people like you on the cutting edge of these kinds of technologies talking about it, I'm, I sometimes I walk away and I, and I wonder, is this more for the humans or more for, for the machines? And I guess what, what I'm thinking here is that we, in, we humans, we intuitively understand a space. So I'm standing in a room now and I can see the distance to, to the two windows in the, in the room. I know where the door is kind of things. But those objects... Yeah, and I realize they're inanimate, they're not robots or anything like that, but, but they don't know anything about each other. How much of, of these kinds of solutions that you're designing and creating and building are for humans, and, and how much do you think they will be used in the future for the other objects as we move further and further into this world of Internet of Things? So objects are going to make decisions for themselves. Could you see this as being a part of that sort of evolution? I definitely. It, it, and it really already is in a way, you know, there's a lot of scenarios you talk about with, uh, you know, robots working in the same environment as humans or, or cobots, as they're called now. Um, definitely, th this is a technology that's going to inform uh, digital systems, whether it is a robotic picking arm or, you know, some sort of roboticized process or even a control system that operates entirely in the digital world. Um, is going to be able to make use of this data. But at the same time, uh, this isn't entirely just for the, the digital world. Um, it, it's also for the human element. And you know, we see this just in that supply chain example I gave. 
because now the humans in that environment are more efficient. They're, they're able to provide a higher ROI and it actually makes them more competitive to their robotic counterparts. And so we actually see in a lot of environments like the manufacturing environment where we're digitizing the human and being able to do real-time quality control, um, in those environments, it actually uh, has a higher ROI for the human as opposed to you know, having to make this big investment and change a process to, to roboticize it. So it, it really does ha- attack the problem from both sides. So this is a podcast for the geospatial community. So we're talking about location. We're talking about positioning of things. Um, And and I guess I should have clarified this right at the start. Are we defining these positions, these locations in 3D space relative to the building? Like, is it a local coordinate system that we're using or are we relating it back to an Earth coordinate system? Yeah, so both. And it really depends on the use case. Um, fundamentally, our system has its own local coordinate system, uh, and that's on a per network basis. Um, but you can relate that uh, to Earth coordinates, and in our system is you know smart enough that it can output GPS coordinates or Earth coordinates if you want, um, or it can give you a local coordinate system reference to a known point, and then it just spits out X, Y, Z in meters. So both are possible. It just depends on how the system's set up. And the reason I wanted you to clarify that was because in an earlier conversation, you gave this wonderful example, this wonderful use case of, of working with drones. And I just wanted to clarify for the listeners that we could, you know, we could work in local coordinate systems or in Earth coordinate systems before we talked about that. Would you mind just walking us through that, that use case again with drones landing and taking off? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, one, it's one of our more exciting uh, use cases for sure. One of the challenges drones have, especially if they're going to be autonomous drones, is a repeatable landing process. And the challenge isn't necessarily doing it right once or even 10 times. It's doing it right 10,000 out of 10,000 times or you know, hopefully even better than that. Um, and that's where it gets really challenging because there's a lot of dynamics. You've got wind, you've got rain, you've got sensor failures, the whole nine yards. Um, and so when we're, when we're looking at a lot of these kind of new models, delivery models, you got Amazon delivery and, and kind of everyone in their, in their dog is trying to get into that business moment. The, the challenge really is making it robust enough that you don't have all these failures and, and whatnot. Cause if you, if you land even a meter off of where you're supposed to land, well, that could be someone's car or it could be a person in general that you've hit. Maybe even in the best case scenario, you've now just had an accident with your drone and it needs to be repaired. So, uh, so there's a lot of problems there and it needs to be really, really robust. Problem is when it comes to outdoor positioning, you, you've got GPS or GNSS uh, as it's often called, and it's only really accurate in a really good case to two meters uh, four meters, kind of an, an average case. Um, so you've got to pair it together with some sort of, whether it's a camera system or you've got a ground radar system. You know, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, technologies in the space, but you have to be really precise. And so there's not really a lot of solutions out there that are robust enough to, to handle this. And one of the cool things we've been able to do is take our technology that traditionally has been very industrial focused 
and apply it to a landing zone. And this is where you would use now our zone as a millimeter level guidance system to allow that drone to land 100% of the time exactly where it should. Now, this is something that we're still working with a, a bunch of our partners with to, to develop and bring to the market, but it's extremely exciting because it, it does really represent you know, that leap in technological capability to, to power this other leap, which was you know, drone technology. So the two together are, have some pretty mind-boggling opportunities. And I guess too, whenever we talk about the Internet of Things or mesh networks and, and these kinds of sensor networks that, that you're using here, we're also talking about more or less real-time information. So I'm assuming these drones are landing and they can position themselves incredibly accurate, accurately in 3D space and adjust to whatever environmental variables are happening at the time and then land. But it's all happening in, in real time. Is, is that the correct way of understanding this? Yeah, absolutely. And so the drone scenario is actually a really, really tough one if you're not operating in real time. Any sort of latency um, in that positioning algorithm is going to make it harder to control the drone. And, and there's all sorts of weird things that can happen to control systems when you, you build in that latency. Um, and actually, that was... Uh, the one space shuttle, I think it was space shuttle Challenger, if I recall, uh, had, had a really big problem with that and almost crashed. Um, they were able to recover it, but it was basically an oscillation caused by a latency in the fly-by-wire system. Without getting into the full story behind that, it, it really just does go to show when it comes to these you know, types of environments where you've got the dynamics of an aircraft, you absolutely need to have low latency information or it can wreak havoc on the control systems. So I just want to try and recap here a little bit before we sort of move off and, and talk about what this kind of technology might look like in the future. Um, so we've, or I should say, you are building these systems. We're, we're locating things in with millimeter accuracy in, in 3D space. So we're taking objects everyday objects, we're digitizing them into some kind of system, we're tagging them with, with your sensors, and we're using ultrasonic ranging to to locate them in 3D space. And this the vehicle for that is, is of course this sort of mesh network that you're building with these with these nodes and with what we call anchor points. And, and then of course we can solve all sorts of problems with that. We can model behaviors and and we can obviously give real-time feedback in terms of the, the drone example that we walked through before. So I guess my question now is, what will this look like in the future? And every time I think about indoor positioning, I, I, I wonder, you know, when is this going to, when are we going to see indoor positioning, indoor navigation with the same kind of market penetration as what we see with outdoor positioning and, and navigation? So, you know, that kind of seamless interaction where it doesn't matter if I'm outside or inside. Um, when do you think that's going to happen? And, and do you think that's a realistic future? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I don't know when. Uh, I think the market is there for kind of this ubiquitous indoor location solution. I, I think a lot of technological problems have to be solved first. And, and whether you're talking about zero key system or, or any system, uh, one of the barriers right now is that you need a critical mass that no one has really achieved. And, and you need a scalable technology. And I don't think we're quite there. You, you know, we kind of got close with with Bluetooth. But the challenge, of course, is that with Bluetooth, you don't have the accuracy 
to really address the full market. You've, you've maybe got 70% of the market. And the other challenge is the maintenance on Bluetooth is quite high. So those two together, you know, you're not quite catching all of the, the market and use cases people want. You didn't really have the critical mass yet. And then at the same time, the ongoing maintenance headache just never could quite cross that threshold of becoming mainstream. I, I think with some of the newer technologies, the focus in the market has really been on not going for a global type solution, but going for uh, you know kind of piecemeal solutions where you could deploy at a factory or a warehouse or a shopping center uh, or a store, and then you know the distribution side of, of getting your technology into the hands of consumers becomes a lot simpler because if you deploy at a store, like for example, say a Walmart, well now the the other piece that the software piece can be built into the Walmart app. But it's it's a step too far to to say that um, you know every customer to a certain shopping center now has to go get a separate app and you know every other shopping center they go to now needs its own app. So there really hasn't been you know that uh, that global traction really necessary to to mainstream uh, the technology yet, and I don't know if we're headed there quite yet. I, I think you do still need a rather big technological jump. It speaks to how difficult of a problem indoor positioning really is. Um, you know, one of, one of the favorite stories uh, that I have uh, around GPS actually goes back to. Uh, when they were lobbying Congress to to get the funding to put the first satellites up in the sky. And, and one of the problems was, one of the reasons we almost never had GPS, uh, was that Congress wasn't really convinced there would be civilian applications or any civilian benefit. So they actually had a lot of problem or a lot of trouble getting the the money to fund the project because at the time, you know, it was, it was a step too far, I guess, to, to really think that you might have this technology in the palm of your hand or in your car even all the way back then. You know, it was just too foreign of a concept and, you know, a capability that we weren't really, you know, used to or, or didn't understand. And it wasn't really until the capability was there and it became ubiquitous to the point where you could get a GPS receiver from a company like Garmin. Um, you know, basically off the shelf. Uh, once that happened, and, and you know, once it got into smartphones, you saw just an explosion of use cases. So it's really interesting that it is one of those things. Like you look at the economic impact of GPS today, it's off the charts. Like if you could even predict that it would have been one one thousandth of what it is now, back when they were trying to get the funding, it would have been a no brainer. They would have signed that check and it would have been an open and shut case. But it is really hard to see where things will go until the capability is in the marketplace. Indoor positioning, I mean, it, it impacts pretty much everything. Everything in your day-to-day -day life, most of those objects are, as far as a, a digital perspective is concerned, uh, at an unknown location. Like you look at your house or even... You know, your keyboard, for example, your computer doesn't know where your keyboard is relative to it or, or anything else. It's, you know, and, and you look at your door, as you mentioned earlier, your, your window, you know, these things are 
basically invisible to the digital world. And even if you have a, a camera on it, it's still not localized. And so indoor positioning can change all of that. And in such a fundamental way that it, it really is hard to look that far down the road to, to say, what could you do with it? I mean, there, there are a couple of things that you know we're working on now that I mentioned on the podcast uh, that are really, really interesting, but you can run with that thread and it, it gets you know pretty sci-fi once you get to the end of it. But I guess time will tell. And this is one of the reasons why I'm so excited for that sort of universal indoor positioning solution, you know, where I can look at the blue dot on my cell phone or whatever platform it happens to be and just see it seamlessly follow me from the outside to the inside. Because not because I'm looking forward to being tracked also on the inside, but because I, I see it as being this fundamental building block, that this platform that we're going to just see an explosion of, of different use cases and applications and ideas come out of. So I'm really excited for that. Matt, I really want to thank you for your insights, for, for the conversation today, for taking the time to come along and teach us all a little bit more about indoor positioning and some of the challenges around it. But just before I let you go, where can the listeners go to, to reach out to you or learn more about your work? Yeah, uh, zerokey.com. Uh, we've got a lot of our technology up there, white paper, list of products. You can go through all of it. We've got some more technical stuff, uh, so you can geek out if you want, or, or you know, we've got some great demo videos as well and, and some interesting stuff on there about what we're doing for, for the current COVID crisis and how we're using our, our tech to, to help uh, with the social distancing effort. Uh, as workers return to the workplace. Thanks again, Matt. I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you having me. So I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Matt. I, I think what they're doing at Zero Key is fascinating and I really appreciate his insights into the future of what this might look like and where we might end up in terms of indoor positioning, indoor navigation. So now that you know Matt a little bit better, you, you've heard his voice and you understand what his, what his business and interest is all about in terms of geospatial, uh, I hope that you'll take the opportunity to schedule a call with him. So there's a limited number of slots, obviously. I think Matt has been incredibly generous with his time, but there is a limited number of slots. And if this is an opportunity you think you would like to be involved in or take part in, please go to mapscaping.com podcast, sign up for the email, and once again, three to four days after this episode goes live I will send out an email to everyone on that list with a link to Matt's calendar where you can schedule a one-on-one -on -one call with him uh, I think this is a really huge opportunity thank you so much Matt for, for your generosity and I really hope that you will take advantage of this so go to mapscaping.com podcast sign up and yeah maybe we can get you on a call with Matt and that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel. It's been a pleasure being your host again this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please share this podcast with someone you think might enjoy it, someone you think might get value out of it. I would really appreciate it. Okay, that's it from me. We'll talk again next week. Bye.